Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM and the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Appreciate that. Good opportunity, or as we say here in the uh, city, as we say here in the city of gold, a golden opportunity. Uh, since I'm here now to remind everybody about uh, the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem, uh, the uh, the city of gold will be celebrating on May the 24th, and we hope everybody out there either will be here or will have a representative here. Make sure to get all the information. Go to mizrahi.org/yy50. Mizrahi.org. Slash YY50. I know that you spend some time um, constantly, practically every day, just like we're doing. You're reminding people to try their best to be in Jerusalem that day. So everyone circle the calendar and try to be there, on, be here rather, on the 24th of May. Better they circle Jerusalem and uh, be there. The calendar, you know, is just a reminder, but being there is what's important. No question about that. Today, by the way, a fun day in Yerushalayim, in the Jerusalem Marathon. Um, and uh, yet another, I mean, we've discussed this a million times, yet another opportunity for the city of Jerusalem to invite people from around the world to see its beauty and to see how incredible it is and to fill up the hotels again for a couple of nights, which is nice. And uh, thank God everything was safe here today. Everything went well. Uh, you know, it's always on the top of the priority list how things went security-wise, and thank God everything was fine. Baruch Hashem, Bali Ayin Hara. Um, also, Malcolm, we must, you and I must, acknowledge that the New York Times itself, believe it or not, um, cited what uh, the JTA had cited a few uh, a few weeks ago, uh, that Jason Greenblatt from the White House uh, tunes into a weekly Jewish radio show featuring Malcolm Holmine each week. So I don't know. Do we have to start? Uh, do we have to start doing this a little differently? Maybe think think twice instead of once before we say things on this show, or we can continue as usual. Well, one of us does think more than once usually before we <laughs> say something. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but you never know who's listening in any of it. That's why you always have to be careful. Make sure what you're saying is right. And um, and I think that uh, maybe we informed some of the discussions that he had uh, this week in Israel and elsewhere. Well, that's the big question. You and I were discussing this off the air. Is there a way for you to evaluate how those talks went, what type of progress he did or did not make during the visit to the Middle East? No, not yet, and we'll hear from, uh, uh, I hope to meet him soon, but uh, I think we'll learn more as uh, time goes on. But I think this trip was not so much to put forward proposals as it was to hear from all the different parties. Uh, he met with Abbas, he certainly met with the Prime Minister of Israel twice, I think. He met with even with settler groups, which I think was important, because if you're going to deal with issues like this, you have to hear from all sides, and that's been a population that largely did not have a say to at least present their their position. And um, and I think that he he will go back now, as as reported, and meet with the president about it. Uh, we'll see what what will come of it. You know, the the bottom line is that they realize negotiations, a process can be assisted, can be facilitated by the U.S., but it comes down to whether. Uh, Mr. Abbas is ready to sit down and really negotiate with Israel. Is he really ready to recognize the Jewish state? Is he just going to put on a show? Uh, there are many people who believe that right now is the time for more bottom-up things like economic development and enhancing people's incentive to, be, to see peace and to, to want to commit, and, uh, and that Abbas is not really ready to do what's necessary in order to, to have a, a, some sort of a conclusion for, for these from these negotiations, 
The Trump administration in general, it seems, has really harped on the term direct negotiations. That, that is, I'm just confirming and curious about your analysis, and really I think it's important to remind everybody, that is very different. As, as little difference as sometimes people like to point out with the previous administration, that's a significant difference in the previous administration, emphasizing direct negotiations between the two parties. Well, the administrations, all the administrations have, have said that uh, the, the ultimate negotiations have to be between the parties that they didn't want to impose, but they created conditions which might have been more difficult or gave the impression or incentivized the Palestinians not to talk because they felt that they could get uh, on from uh, the international community, from going to the UN, the ICC, and other bodies. You saw how Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the UN, how strongly she reacted to some of the actions this week, one where, where uh, this group, uh, XWA, which is a group of 18 Arab countries who have the East Asian Economic and Social Committee, something ridiculous, uh, based in Beirut, and by the way, with 400 staff people there. So when we're talking about cuts, this is a good place to start looking. And it seems that each of the regional grouping has a similar office that's in addition to the Department for Economic and all of the other bodies that deal with these issues at the United Nations. In any event, she came down very hard because they came out with a report saying that Israel imposes apartheid on the Palestinians. Then it turns out it's written by Richard Falk, who has certainly been discredited over the years. He was a U.N. official and and, uh, viciously anti-Israel, and by all assessments, it seems, uh, you know, hostile. And he, he wrote this report. And she came down about the Human Rights Council's biases against Israel, et cetera. So uh, there's a different atmosphere certainly created in addition to whatever substantive differences. And that the fact that the president said it's up to the parties, he's not going to say whether it should be one, two-state, whatever. But they have gone back to the language of, of talking about a two-state solution. And the, the, um, uh, the, the regional setting is very different. We have real challenges still. Uh, but the, the regional setting, and for the Palestinians, the message from many of the countries is it's time to, to get to a resolution. Obviously, you mentioned the, a moment ago about Nikki Haley and the human rights uh, um, you know, the violation accusations against Israel. Netanyahu, the prime minister, specifically asked Italy this week to oppose further UNESCO uh, Jerusalem resolutions. Does her presence in the U.N. on the assumption that you know, that casual observers like me are right, that she's there with, a, with, with an interest to defend Israel. Um, does it help with, with, with things like UNESCO and those types of resolutions, or, we're really, or she's really there only dealing with the political aspect? No, it's the U.S. presence. Usually there are other ambassadors who, or representatives who sit in these bodies, but uh, not with, in regard to UNESCO because the United States is not a member because UNESCO recognized the Palestinian state, and U.S. law is that if you recognize it, we're out. So we are out of there. The debate now is whether the U.S. should again pull out of the Human Rights Council. If you remember, under President Bush, we withheld our ambassador. They didn't appoint one to it. President Obama did re-engage at the council, in the ho- and it was supposedly revised, but in fact, it reverted back to form and just condemns Israel more times than all other countries together, has more resolutions. I think uh, uh, over nine years, maybe 60 resolutions against Israel and five on Iran, or all the major violators are Syria, and the the... Um, uh, so the the question about engagement is going to be one uh, that's going to be debated now, whether the Congress will start to cut funding and say to them, 
if you don't shape up, we're going to cut it out completely or start seeing some real reforms and changes, not only budgetary, but in terms of the agenda and this bias against Israel, et cetera. Uh, so it will be something you'll hear a great deal about now. Um, and while on the subject of, uh, of the administration, uh, Sebastian Gorka, I noticed this in the Jerusalem Post, a counterterrorism advisor for, for President Trump. He's reportedly a member of a, uh, of a group that's listed by the U.S. State Department as, a, as, an affili- as one that has an affiliation with Nazi Germany, or I assume Nazi groups in Germany. Uh, and should there be an effort, as the article indicates, by Jewish groups to have him ousted from the White House? Be- but the story has been repudiated. And uh, according to people I spoke to last night, late last night, the story has not been uh, uh, justified. <clears throat> there was supposedly somebody in the organization who said that he was a member, but in fact, he, he completely denies it, said he had no association with them. So we have to get much more facts before. Unfortunately, you know, in this era, anybody can make an accusation. And with the speed of light or the speed of the Internet, it becomes a fact. And unfortunately, in this case, one of the publications picked it up. Um, but it's not clear that, that, that there is validity. People who know him told me last night that they don't believe that uh, this story is at all true. What about the story about the action yesterday between Syria and Israel? Israel's denying that it happened, correct? No. Israel's confirming that they took an action, and it was probably to cut off the supply to Hezbollah or Hamas of some sophisticated weapons. It was the more escalated event, and Syria lobbed some uh, missiles into Israel, anti-aircraft missiles that landed in Israel. Uh, and they have uh, said that this is the most serious encounter. Uh, Israel rarely uh, acknowledges any of the raids that it, t- that it has done, about two, a dozen of them or two dozen over the years, uh, despite which Hezbollah has managed to smuggle some of the weapons, but not nearly the quantity, and Israel blew up a warehouse where there was a lot of the, uh, the both the missiles and the components. But now the Iranians have facilitated building underground facilities in Lebanon for the manufacturing of the FETA missiles. And uh, there are IRGC, Iran Revolutionary Guard personnel, plus Syrians who were trained at this technical university in, in Tehran, uh, who are working on assembling and building the missiles there. Again, it's underground, so it's uh, not really visible, and, and we don't know all the locations, et cetera, but, but the, the IRGC itself has confirmed the existence of these facilities. And um, and this is in part because Israel knocked out one of the warehouses in Sudan. They knocked out them, uh, some of their facilities, uh, transshipment facilities in Syria, uh, and uh, so they had to look for an alternative and that is to do it yourself. So the denial is about Syria shooting down an Israeli jet. That's that the idea. Said, exactly. Right. That That's the idea true. that never happened. Right. And on the other things, so when we read about the January, uh, you know, the takeout of the warehouse, etc., that was in the Sudan, or some of those were in Syria itself? No, Syria only. There was an attack in the Sudan, one or two, uh, which took out facilities because they were transshipping through Sudan via Egypt, via other ways, Libya, to get to, to Lebanon to get to Hezbollah, but uh, then they started transporting it via Syria because they had full access now in Syria, and those attacks were, were in Syria by and large. 
so, so now you know my next question, you know, based on what we discussed last week again. I mean, now, because of the, the Russian presence in the region, and because, you know, you somewhat described, you described us you know, somewhat last week what the relationship is between the prime minister and the president of, of Russia, uh, before this happens, does Israel inform Putin about it? Do they, do they make sure that, that there's some type of communication with them because of his... Uh, because of his dominance at the moment in the region? Well, there are two dominant factors in Syria today. One is Iran and one is Russia, both of whom are looking for permanent presence there. Both are building bases, Russia air and naval. Right now, Iran just naval. Um, but they're also you know, doing exchange of population, doing many other things. When Netanyahu was in Russia recently, you can be sure that this was the major issue of discussion, was the encroachment of IRGC, uh, the militias, Shiite militias, and others backed by Iran um, it, into the Golan area, and that if there is a ceasefire or anything, that the, the Golan is not part of the deal, that, that that is off the table, and that the security situation at Israel is not going to permit it, and they will retaliate. So it's in everybody's interest not to see an escalation here and to make sure that, that uh, both the Iranian Agencies and uh, agents and the IRGC itself are not allowed to go near the Golan, nor near the border of Jordan, which has a long border both with Syria and Iraq and has a huge military presence along that border, but very scared and in a difficult situation generally today. So this is even more potentially destabilizing. Do you think that uh, in, in light of what happened this week, that Israel does have to inform Russia before taking such action, or we're not at that stage where that has to be done? I know it's speculation. No, there is coordination. There is a coordination apparatus in place, which I assume notifies them if Israeli aircraft are involved. Most of the attacks by Israel has been done by missile, which avoids the S-300 aircraft defense system that Russia provided to Syria. It's very advanced. And uh, so Israeli aircraft have to be uh, more careful, uh, but I, I think that there is a mechanism in place where there's some notification. To America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm has limited time this week, so I'm going to get right back to things in a moment. Just wanted to remind everybody that we thank our friends at JewishWorldReview.com. If you are looking for thousands of articles on Jewish subjects and Israel subjects to print out before Shabbos, go to JewishWorldReview.com. Highly recommended. And, of course, our friends at OnlySimplest.com who continue to utilize our content for much of what they report in their regular news feed, in addition to all the great Simplest that they announce. Uh, a big thank you to OnlySimplest.com. And a reminder, our varsity hockey and junior varsity hockey championship games are happening this Sunday. Manischewitz are presenting them, and we are going to have them exclusively on our website on the homepage at NahumSiegel.com. You can watch them anywhere around the world. Um, Iran has set up underground rocket factories in Lebanon. Now, this, this, this is or is not a new story. They have been operative for about three months. There have been reports of this uh, for a long, a long time. And I think, um, you know, that they've been providing them with all sorts of weapons. We know that they have the underground network of tunnels in southern Lebanon along the Israel border. And um, But now they have these people, as I said before, Lebanese trained there who are uh, uh, working with them. 
and this is, uh, you know, obviously a big threat. What was interesting was to see the Secretary General of the United Nations condemn Hezbollah's uh, activities, the fact that it's a violation of the UN Resolution 1701 that was adopted after the Second Lebanese War, and that they're not supposed to think that they're compromising Lebanese sovereignty. But the fact is that because now they are an integral part uh, there were a number of uh, comments this week and, and something we touched on before that now uh, they are all going to be part of, if, if there's, God forbid, another conflict or, or attack. Um, in the past, Israel avoided civilian targets or targets of the uh, Iraqi government, uh, of this uh, Lebanese government, because Hezbollah was a separate entity. Today, they are one and the same, and the president, Aoun, is is a big supporter of theirs, and they are, have integrated with the Lebanese army. In fact, we would say dominate the Lebanese army. So they become fair game, uh, and you won't have the limitations that uh, existed before. Yeah, and it goes without saying that Israel and its military forces are well aware of what's happening up north. They're well aware of it. They they want to avoid any any kind of a conflict. They've been warning them about staying away from the border area, and uh, and and if there are incursions or any kind of encroachment on, that threatens Israel's security, Israel will have to send a very strong message. Um, just back to earlier, we were talking about the diplomacy uh, and the visit to to Israel. So it, I, I'm. I don't remember if you said it or not. There will be a, a definite Abbas visit to the White House. Was there a formal invitation and a formal acceptance to that? Yes, there was a formal invitation, a formal acceptance. I don't know if they set the date. I know that President Sisi is due to come in early April. Others are scheduled to come, and I assume that he will come then as well. Right, but but, you, he, but he also put down conditions supposedly Abbas to to Greenblatt that Israel has to stop the settlements that they have to release a number of prisoners they have to guarantee a Palestinian state in the sixty seven borders that they have to um, uh, there were other conditions that they set for uh, uh, the negotiations they and specifically a timetable all of which are, are I do not think are new but they put they put these forward as uh, conditions. Um, say, and some started interpreting it that, well, maybe he's ready for real talks. I do not believe that that, that this represents any kind of a, of a significant change. And when it comes to the nuclear capability, the, the North Korea issue, obviously very big right now. Iran, obviously, is always, you know, uh, a, an issue of importance when it comes to Israel. I assume that Middle East envoys of the White House are not addressing those issues, and that would be more of a, a Rex Tillerson uh, you know, visit to the Middle East, would that be accurate? No, I think that, that this is a priority issue of the National Security Council. I'm not sure. The State Department isn't really staffed up yet. He is dealing with the North Korea issue, that's true. And uh, but, but in terms of the Middle East uh, issues, uh, certainly regarding Iran, Iran announced yesterday that the Boucher II nuclear reactor is going to is going, the construction just started, and you know they're also making more threatening statements about the, the naval capacity and threatening the U.S., including having the some a very key guy in the IRGC, the man who heads their uh, runs the security policy division of it, said that they have a big infrastructure in the United States and that they have two million Iranians here. Uh, people should not start believing that Iranian Americans are involved. I don't believe it's the case, but he's talking about a clandestine army. Uh, I think it's a, it's a hollow threat, but but a danger that that they do operate uh, all over, and that 
those issues in regard to Iran would not be limited. I think it is the uh, priority issue. We will have to see how it, it, it plays out. Right now, I think it will be the National Security Council that will take the lead in that regard. We also have to look at, by the way, the, the uh, growth of al-Qaeda again, reemerging as the battle with ISIS becomes the, it has been the focus in Syria. They have come back with a, a, a new group, HST, it's a new umbrella, and they are looking to establish themselves. Um, and you saw the bombing that took place in Damascus, where 74 people were killed, and they said this was a message to Iran and the Shiite militias because they hit two holy shrines that are really associated with the Shiites. Uh, and just back to Iran for a moment, on, and we, we see more public statements by Turkey, which seems to indicate that they're pretty fearful of Iran. Um, and I, I wonder if that will only increase the potential of an even better relationship with Israel. Well, it, the, the Iranians are, are upset because they think that, are reportedly upset because they think the Russians are veering towards the Turks uh, as opposed to Iran. Iran, uh, we heard, has offered Russians uh, permanent bases uh, at the Persian Gulf, uh, but there seems to be some tension uh, specifically in, in Iran, and as I said, Iran, like Russia, are... are are seeking permanent uh, status and building the bases. Um, and, but Russia, which is also has special forces in Egypt near the Libyan border and is trying to build a base in Libya, is taking advantage of the situation to create a footprint in the region. And their activities along the border there are to support a guy, uh, uh, Khalifa Haftar, who's uh, leading a military force. And they just want to be there no matter what the outcome is in Libya, that they want to have a power position like they do in uh, in Syria. Iran, uh, Iran's foreign minister yesterday issued a warning to Turkey telling them they should demonstrate self-restraint and said to them that they have to act more seriously. Uh, this is pretty strong diplomatic language coming from a foreign minister to to another country. Um, so I think Erdogan is still preoccupied with Holland and other things, but uh, I don't believe that that will go without a response for long. Hmm. Um, what do you make of Jordan's denial of the U.S. request to extradite the Sabaro bombing attack terrorists? Is this typical of Jordan? And we've been here you know, down this road before. Or do you think they're going to eventually turn around and follow the U.S. Uh, request? I do not think so. I think because of their domestic situation, he doesn't want to. I think we have to remember that the Sabaro murderer, um, uh, Al-Tamimi, was uh, sentenced, this was in 2001, because of the Sabaro bombing, and he uh, was released after eight years as part of the Shalit deal. And remember, right. seven children were amongst those killed in that horrific event. Fifteen people were killed altogether together, and he has since served as a TV host in Jordan and is very celebrated, and I think the Jordanian government is probably afraid of what the repercussions would be and would likely be. But what's important also is that the Department of Justice, for the first time, sought the deportation of, of uh, somebody for that a kind of act for, for Palestinian um, terrorist activity, and uh, it's, a, it's a legal precedent, and hopefully they will go after others as well. Right. We should keep in mind also that there was a, a sentencing, I believe it was a sentencing, in the case of the driver in the Mickey Mark murder. Um, and in addition to that, I was told that uh, the trial of the terrorist responsible for Ezra Schwartz's murder starts this Sunday in Israel. In fact, some of the boys who were actually 
at the scene in the van with him or back in Israel for that trial that starts, I believe, on Sunday. Sometimes we forget about the, the justice that, that needs to and eventually, hopefully, is carried out in these cases. Uh, that's one of the things that continues to go on um, in lieu of the attacks. And again, we see this week there was an attempt uh, of another terrorist attack here in, uh, in Israel, a car ramming. That I don't know if you saw the video, but it, yes. was, it, it, it didn't succeed for the strangest of circumstances. Maybe maybe a driver who was, you know, not quite sure what they were doing, but um, uh, these things continue. On the better news, by the way, and I know you're limited on time, but i got to mention it, but what was your impression of the mobile eye deal this week? Ken Yerbu, getting 15 <laughs> It should only happen to companies that we're involved with that, uh, that it's really terrific. At, at, at the biggest uh, IPO, the biggest uh, purchase to buy out uh, $15 billion for an Israeli thing. And it, it, and it just raises the status of Israel's significance and centrality, and especially in this cutting edge technology of you know, driverless cars, which uh, will be something that we will all see in the future. By the way, I don't know if you saw also that Israel shut down finally this uh, an agency, the PA, that worked out of Jerusalem to keep track tank of any Arabs who sold land to Jews, and that was finally shut down by uh, Gilad Erdan, the Minister of uh, Public Security, and the, anybody who who was willing to sell land or homes to Jews was given to the PA security services, and obviously they were then uh, addressed. And and uh, on legal grounds, they were able to close that. Yes, because they said it, it violated the sovereignty of uh, of Israel and Jerusalem, and um, and that uh, that it terrorizes Arabs who sell state uh, real estate to Jews. I mean, why should somebody be permitted to carry out in a function like that? hundred percent. We're also and seeing so the incursions, by the way, in the areas around Jerusalem along Highway One, where more than a thousand. Buildings already built by Bedouin on both sides of the road. What clearly is a, a land has implications in terms of a land grab as well, and Israel's been starting to address it. But it's being fu- funded by the EU and the, the Palestinian Authority. When Israel wanted to build re- reasonable housing and, and create the towns for them, the EU and the PA rejected it. But now we're seeing that they're they're trying to um, create facts on the ground, and more being built every day. By the way, I mean, you know, I mean, I have the chance, thank God, to be here every few months. You on a more regular basis. I mean, isn't it unbelievable? You talk about Highway One. Isn't it unbelievable the progress that's being made on the construction? Do you sometimes drive on the BQE and wonder why Israel can't take care of the construction of our roads and infrastructure? Uh, I wonder all the time. But <laughs> <laughs> it's just unbelievable. The, the, the tunnels and overpasses have been built. They're really highways. remarkable, and the, 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 you know it's almost like they came out of nowhere. Because when you you know yeah. we drive on those roads, you don't realize all the work that goes on in between. But it is amazing, and now the, the light railroad, the railroad connections, the it's a revolutionary change. Pretty amazing, and of course. Uh, uh, <laughs> although I'm sure, it'll, I'm sure it'll get some type of humorous, humorous reaction. Still, we understand the importance on the world stage of um, of presenting oneself in a good manner. Uh, in this case, the Israel team in the World Baseball Classic—they they really, really did well, even though they had a rough ending. And I think that needs to be acknowledged. And they really represented the Jewish people, I thought, really nicely in a variety of ways, including uh, with Kipot as the Hatikva was playing at these games. That, and you, as you've discussed so many times for us about symbolism, that should not be minimized. It shouldn't be, and they we never expected to get as far as they did. 
the fact that they lost is is the way the game goes. But uh, I think you're right. And it really got people in Israel excited, and I think it will project baseball in Israel in the future. No question about it. Well, I promise you'd be finished by uh, 8.14. So I thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos and greetings from Jerusalem. And to you, and have a great Shabbos there. Keep us in mind. Thank you.